Welcome. This is David Barris, president of the American Association of Bank Directors, host of ABD's Calling All Bank Directors podcast. Today we have as our guest, Dr. David Skanderson, to discuss what you need to know about redlining in the current environment. This is part two to our redlining discussion with Dave. He's a vice president of Charles River Associates and is focused on issues related to consumer credit underwriting, pricing, marketing, and servicing with a specialization in fair lending, redlining, and non-discrimination matters. Please let me know if you have any follow-up questions by contacting me at dbarris at abd.org. All right, let's call Dave. Hello, Dave. Hi, David. Today's subject is a continuation of our last podcast episode on what bank directors need to know about redlining. So uh, you and I have talked previously about historical origins of redlining, and can you add a little more to that and its relevance to redlining today? Sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an interesting subject, and I think it's one that most folks don't really have much of a grasp of in terms of the history. Uh, what's interesting about redlining is that it has origins in both private behavior and government action or government policy. You know, today, we think about redlining in terms of what banks and other lenders do, um, but in the past, uh, it was really the federal government who, through policy, was effectively pushing redlining. So if we go back in history to the New Deal era, um, one of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal programs was something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, um, which was aimed at supporting home ownership during the Depression and post-Depression era and expanding home ownership. So where redlining comes in is that uh, the Homeowners Loan Corporation started publishing maps in the 1930s uh, that were basically designed to delineate areas that were uh, perceived to be good for mortgage lending. So they had good credit worthiness or other desirable lending properties. Um, and those maps actually color-coded certain areas uh, that mainly had uh, largely African-American populations. They coded them red on the maps and they labeled them hazardous. Um, so they were they were perceived as or portrayed as uh, being uh, hazardous for lending, shall we say. So that, that color coding, that red color coding on the map is where the term redlining comes from. Um, and the redlining, redline neighborhoods tend to be uh, older districts of center cities, um, the racial composition of the area was a key factor in how they were rated for uh, lending risk, and the appraisal guidelines that were published by the HOLC also embodied uh, views that you know, we would regard as uh, racist and, and language that we'd regard as racist to characterize certain areas. And then later on, when the the, Fed, the uh, Federal Housing Administration came along, the appraisal manuals published by FHA actually instructed banks to steer clear of so-called racially inharmonious neighborhoods. And then private sector, privately published uh, residential appraisal guidelines um, basically mirrored those same kinds of uh, standards. So, you know, the effect of all that was that federally backed home financing 
was generally denied to neighborhoods that had high concentrations of African-American residents. And the same policies typically denied African-Americans access to new suburban housing developments that were federally insured, um, and they discouraged racial integration. I think that was really one of the the objectives of those policies. Now, of course, um, all those policies are gone now, but because they uh, reinforced and expanded the residential segregation that already existed in the U.S. at the time, they essentially set in motion a whole historical pattern of racial segregation in some areas that contributed to substantial wealth gaps, uh, educational uh, opportunity gaps, gaps in employment opportunities, and other kinds of economic disparities. So, you know, taking it back to you know, the question of why redlining is of interest today, I think a key interest of regulators is ensuring that the past patterns of discrimination that led to segregation and other economic inequality uh, are not being perpetuated in the future, and particularly based on either lender practices that uh, avoid or neglect minority areas or lenders making uh, presumptions about desirability of those areas for lending, particularly mortgage lending. Um, so, you know, regulators are keen to see that banks and others are making credit available on an equitable basis um, so that we can hopefully over time overcome some of the, the past, uh, the history of segregation driven by policy and private action. Dave, uh how will the bank board know or find out whether its bank has a redlining problem? Um, well, uh, first of all, uh, you don't want to be one of those financial institutions that finds out from their regulator or the Justice Department or through a lawsuit that you have a problem. Um, like any other, <clears throat> excuse me, any other kind of risk, um, you can't measure it. You can't uh, manage it if you don't measure it, as they say. Um, or especially if you don't know it exists. So uh, banks should be actively monitoring for redlining risk as part of their fair lending programs. Um, and as I mentioned before, regulators expect that banks are going to be doing that. Um, I think that from the perspective of a bank board or an audit committee, uh, folks should be asking about what kind of monitoring activity is going on for fair lending generally and for uh, redlining specifically. Um, and it's useful for a bank to have at least an annual process of doing that kind of fair lending review, including looking at redlining risk, uh, and then reporting up the results of that to senior management um, and as necessary the board, and then where necessary taking corrective action to address possible risks. And by risks, I mean not just actual redlining, but the perception of potential redlining. Um, so uh, I think that uh, it's important for boards to be aware that uh, lending patterns and aspects of policies and procedures could create the appearance of redlining, even if there's no intention to redline minority areas. Um, and you, you need to take that into account in not just day-to-day -day activities, but also in strategic decisions. Sometimes redlining issues come up because of a bank's expansion plans or contraction plans or acquisition plans. So when making those kinds of strategic decisions, 
um, I think it behooves uh, a bank and its its board to make sure that you're not essentially creating a redlining issue for yourself by, say, acquiring an institution that has an issue or uh, expanding into only white areas and neglecting nearby minority areas, things of that sort. Dave, uh, what are the red flags uh, for the board and senior management to identify? Well, it, it, in the first part of this podcast, I talked about some of the things that regulators look for, and those are essentially the same kinds of things that banks need to look, be looking for when they, they look inward. Um, redlining is a fairly complex issue, and each bank tends to have its own unique set of circumstances. So identifying possible red flags is really kind of a multifaceted issue. There might not be one red flag, but there might be a number of yellow flags that add up to being red, shall we say. Um, a key piece of the puzzle is fundamentally whether the bank is actually serving minority areas on an equitable basis. So if you look at data on lending patterns, um, do you see that the bank is lending in minority areas to a similar extent that other banks in the area are lending to those areas? Um, if the bank is falling short of others in the market, uh, especially well short, if it appears to be an outlier in the market in the extent to which it serves minority areas, then that's one possible red flag that could lead to additional attention, uh, attention or an investigation. So a bank needs to do some benchmarking against the market and against competitors, against peer banks. Um, if you want to think about that sort of in a more positive way, uh, to the extent that there are lending opportunities in minority areas that the bank is not taking advantage of, that's really a lost business opportunity. You're leaving money on the table. Uh, if other banks are finding they can lend profitably in minority areas, you have to wonder um, why you're not doing the same if, if indeed you're not. Um, but some of the other issues, you know, uh, when regulators are looking at this, um, they're essentially looking at various indications that the bank is either neglecting minority areas or avoiding minority areas. And often it's a, it's a combination of pieces of evidence that combine to create a picture of potential discrimination. So some of the other things uh, are, are uh, like, do, do banks have any lending policies or practices that discourage lending in minority areas? Um, do they have policies or practices that tend to characterize minority areas as less desirable for lending or uh, having fewer opportunities or being more risky. Uh, another possible indicator is just looking at the extent of branching by the bank. Uh, does the bank have branch offices in minority areas, near minority areas, or is the branching highly skewed towards non-minority areas? Uh, also, as I mentioned before, CRA assessment areas and how they're drawn are important. Uh, do the assessment areas include nearby minority areas within the general uh, market area of the bank? Uh, do the bank's growth plans, its strategic plans, generally have consideration of minority area lending? Um, are the same kinds of products available across the bank's footprint in both minority areas and non-minority areas? And then thinking about advertising, um, does the bank market uh, its lending in uh, minority areas to the same extent as non-minority areas? Um, does it use media that reach minority areas? 
Uh, does it use images in advertisements and on the website that uh, reflect uh, diverse people? Uh, these are just some of the things that regulators tend to look at and that a bank should be uh, looking at itself to see whether there are any indications that um, there's an actual redlining issue or a perception of a redlining issue. Dave, uh, finally, um, if there is a problem identified, what should a bank board be doing about it? Well, um, I think that you know, if there is truly an issue of discrimination against minority neighborhoods or an appearance of potential discrimination, um, it, it's important that the bank have a specific action plan to deal with it. Um, and it, I think it's also important that they do that with the advice from legal counsel. I know you're a lawyer, David. I'm not a lawyer. I'm an economist. Um, but I think that something like this has to be approached carefully and with appropriate legal advice. Um, if there are any issues of direct discrimination, obviously those have to be dealt with directly. And they need to be addressed. Otherwise, if it's simply a matter of uh, not having sufficient lending in minority areas, it becomes a strategic planning exercise. So the bank basically needs to develop a plan for um, how to reach those opportunities in minority areas that they haven't been reaching in the past. Um, some possible elements of a strategy would include targeted marketing to uh, focus on minority areas. That might mean you know, deciding uh, what sort of media to use, uh, might even include foreign language uh, advertisements, for example. Uh, could include hiring of loan officers who have relationships in minority areas. It could include uh, changing the product mix, offering uh, loan products that are geared towards lower income or lower wealth borrowers, um, because often uh, high minority areas are also uh, lower income neighborhoods. So there are a lot of mortgage products out there um, that include down payment assistance, they might be programs that are sponsored by state housing finance agencies, um, higher LTV products, loan-to-value ratio products that Fannie Mae and Freddie, Mae, Freddie Mac offer, um, those sorts of things. Um, and then developing relationships in the community is often uh, an approach that banks use. Um, if you identify community groups uh, such as HUD-approved um, Home, buyer, home buying counselors uh, and develop relationships with those groups and those people, that can be a way to essentially cultivate future uh, buyers of homes and therefore mortgage loan customers in minority areas. Um, and then finally, whatever actions uh, the bank decides to take, it's important that they be monitored for their effectiveness, and then you adjust the plan as you go along as necessary. And it's also important that the bank document what it's doing and what it's achieving so that if a regulator should come in and see you know, evidence of concern regarding potential redlining, uh, you have a well-documented package that shows what the bank has done in good faith to try and uh, expand its lending in minority areas or address a historical problem that it had. Uh, getting ahead of it is a good way to avoid a serious enforcement action if there is a problem down the road.
And I assume also the board involvement itself is, is an advantage in having the minutes uh, reflect board issue uh, that the board is involved in the oversight function. That's right, David. Um, if if you look at situations where uh, investigations happened, um, where the regulator um, issues various production requests, like a civil investigative demand in the case of the CFPB, uh, some of the things that they ask for are information about board minutes and that sort of thing, strategic plans. Um, and if you have evidence, both in the compliance program and executive reporting and in board minutes that show this is something that the board is paying attention to and acting on, um, that really helps the, the picture. Well, Dave, uh Thank you again for joining us, and very thank you very much for uh, your wisdom and knowledge. Pleasure, David.